Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. And our guest today is Angela Lathwell. Angela was a member of the Children of God group, now renamed as the Family International. And Angela, you said to me that one of the last taboos for someone who'd been in this group was to actually say that they had been on the inside. So we really appreciate you being with us today on the What Should I Think About podcast and for talking about your experience. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Angela, could you tell us a little bit about your story? So I was born in to the Children of God, um, which are now called the Family International. And the first things you need to know about growing up in the children of God in the 1980s and 1990s is that it means living in a commune completely isolated from the outside world and preparing for the end time or the last days which is something I think we have in common with Jehovah's mm. audience yeah, absolutely um, and so where this came from really was that we were living Acts 2 44 45 from the Bible so that says that All that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. So for us, that meant that we were living communally. We were rejecting in its entirety the church system and the outside world. And we had formed this structure of, of living communally. And then to have all things common meant that you all of your possessions all of your any money that you had it didn't matter if you'd earned it or if you inherited it or you'd done some kind of fundraising for it every single penny was handed over to the group so you were completely and entirely reliant on them for all of your daily needs and there was a saying that we kind of had in the group um, which the founder had started which was you you tell us what you need and we're going to tell you how to live without it so, oh, you know, oh, lovely. yeah, so it was, um, you know, growing up there, you know, poverty, I would say, you know, for most of us, mm. especially on the ground. And I don't think that was the case as you got higher up in the group. Um, mm. uh, money's going somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so many of these things. Um, you know, the founder is always pictures, of, you know, in a house with a big swimming pool and, mm. and so on. But that certainly was not my personal lived experience. Sure. Um, so that was very much what it was like um, to grow up in there. And um, people always want to know what kind of house you lived in. So Mm. we tended to rent the houses and Mm. it really depended on what you could get. And we were always moving from place to place because we were trying to stay low and under the radar of the police. And so Mm. we lived in anything from some places were converted factories and that ranged all the way through to, you know, could be a terraced house. At one point, 
for a couple of months, I lived in um, a little flat on top of a shop in London. It's one of those ones where you can just, you know, where you go just to pick up some milk or some apples mm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's little kind sure. of corner, sh- corner shops. Mm-hmm. So it, like it really ranged. And what tends to surprise people is that you could be living next door to a children of God commune and just mm-hmm. absolutely have no idea. And typically it would be anything from 50 people to a couple of hundred people living in one house. I was about to wow. say how many people were all packed into a tiny space. That's that's crazy. Wow. Yeah. So really crowded conditions. Mm-hmm. And so in a bedroom you would have um you'd have normally be like a couple that, that that stayed in a bedroom. And as children we were divided up by age groups. And so there would be a group of you and there might be, you know, eight or nine or ten of you of a similar age sleeping mm-hmm. all in one bedroom. So you're thinking wow. bunk beds. We had very creative solutions. Um, with them about bunk beds, there was, um, I don't know if you've heard of like trundle beds or rainbow beds. So these are like, mm-hmm. they kind of stack almost like um, those Russian dolls, like, into oh, yeah. the and you could slide them under a bunk bed and sometimes a triple bunk bed. Mm-hmm. And then you just pull them out so every every inch of space was used. Wow. Is um, this this thing where like it's uh, or like communal where the children are raised by the community rather than just individual sort of parent groups yeah mm-hmm. exactly um right. so in the 1980s um the leader he would communicate with us through letters so he mm-hmm. lived in this very remote location i never met him um nobody yeah. knew where he was and so he would communicate by letters and we called them the mo letters mm-hmm. and there was constantly a new revelation new idea and so one of them was called the one wife vision and that was that you know god is in the business of breaking up families he wants yeah so so that so after that we didn't really have that typical family structure anymore you sort of Mm. you still knew your parents and for the most part you'll be allowed to have dinner with them and then you could have one hour which we call parent time but outside of that you know you stayed within the in the group and then you know everybody you you call any adults your uncle you know uncle or auntie Mm -hmm. the adults called one another brother and sister and the founder, my generation, we called him grandpa. And my parents' generation, they called him, um, they called him Mo or they called him dad. Mm-hmm. So it was about separating us internally from our families. But then also outside of the group, we were also separated from our wider families because rejecting the world also meant we were isolated. So you couldn't have contact really with your, you know, with anybody outside. So if somebody was mm. outside, that was it. So that he replaced our family with this, with a structure by having everyone sort of called family names and so on. Yeah. Exactly. So mm. now it makes sense to you probably why they're now called the family. Yeah, um, that, you know, that, that makes sense. Was. It was one big family. Mm. Okay. So, so that was um, that was life growing up. Um, how how did that develop then? As you get older, what 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 happens to you? Yeah. So as we got older they started to worry about us because, you know, as people enter their teenage years, it's really natural that you want to find your mm. identity. You go through a natural process um, where you're supposed to be getting ready to leave home and to find out who you are and have your own ideas. Yeah. And that was something that they really didn't want us to do because mm. our own ideas were, you know, may not align with mm. their ideas and what they wanted us to do. So then they started to develop programs um they were like training 
programs where they tried to turn us into God's end time army, essentially, as children. And it got to the point where some of these camps were, you know, they could be quite cruel at times. So, you know, with excessive punishments. So, for example, um, there was a, a, a period of a couple of years for me when it got quite intense. And so one of the things that they would use was called silence restriction. And so that meant you weren't allowed to speak, but it went beyond that to where you weren't allowed to make any eye contact or have any contact at all with anybody. So during that period, I had no contact at all with my with my parents or my family. And yeah, so, you know, if you looked at somebody, I learned to look at the ground. And it's a habit mm. I still i am trying to break because I know other people have said to me, it's, it's odd that I do it. Mm, but I learned sure. to look at my feet when I walked so that I wouldn't get in trouble for communicating by accidentally making eye contact with anyone. So I was on, the longest period was for six months that I was on that. Um, but then it was on and off and on and off. Um, mm-hmm. Was there any reason given, obviously there's no good reason to do that to somebody, but was there any excuse of a reason why they they made made you do that for a period of time they they rolled it out across all of the communes in the uk mm-hmm. so there was like i've heard of one or two teenagers who escaped it but everybody else was on it so it wasn't anything right. specifically to be put onto that it was just i happened to be the wrong age in the wrong right. year mm-hmm. um, and then the idea was that you know, they were seeing little little sparks of rebellion in different teenagers around the place, and they thought, you know, we're going to quash this. Um, okay. So but it's I like think a mistake it's like... they made. Yeah, the mistake they made is that they were really good at that kind of recruiting and the first generation and inspiring them and love bombing them. But with my generation, hmm. they didn't know what to do, and so then they rolled out. You know, they thought if they hit us enough, if they isolated us from everybody, they thought that if they used these techniques, that we would they would get these like wholehearted true believers but actually people you know when we got old enough you know people just left in droves and that's really interesting angry Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. that's really interesting so you're you're suggesting that they their their cult was was geared up to recruit and they hadn't really given any proper thought to how they they deal with the born-ins yeah Mm. um yeah that's really interesting and the great irony of it really for me is that that it was kind of part of their strategy to grow was to have a lot of born-ins because yeah. you know, um, contraception was banned. We um, There was something called go for gold, which is a euphemism for not using any contraception. Um, right. And so everybody had so many children. So the norm mm-hmm. inside was to have you know, nine, 10 children. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once they had that, they just thought that if you were born in, you would somehow be pure. You'd have the spiritual purity that people who were not born in would not have and that we would just mm. automatically be these sort of end time leaders and warriors and believe everything but yeah it didn't work like that well that's that's really mm. um yeah I, I think that's a, a level of extreme that um yeah is 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 way beyond <laughs> the, the the bad things that that i could describe in in the group that that i came from i mean that's just shocking really mm-hmm. so in terms of the 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 beliefs obviously you you've you you quoted a bible verse there without even thinking about it that was that'll stay with you forever yeah <laughs> i definitely know that um but so it was it was basically bible based by the sound of it and actually you know reading a little bit about the group 
it sounds very familiar. The things that you just that you know you're talking about there are very familiar to to the ears of an ex Jehovah's Witness. I think so. Would you just give us a bit of a a potted view of of what their theology is? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, really, it's born out of the USA and that kind of evangelical culture that you have yeah. there. So there is so much overlap with fundamental fundamentalist churches and those kind of yeah. doctrines. It just you know, it's a cult, so maybe a few things have a little spin on it, you know, that was sure. from the leader. And it it was born out of that hippie culture of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So I always kind of describe it as that fundamentalist church meets hippie culture. And we're mm-hmm. kind of at that in- intersection between those mm-hmm. two things. Um, but, I mean, I think probably the first thing really to say about, about the belief system is the founder. You know, the, the founder is mm-hmm. so important figure in these groups and he um he was born in 1919 and he was the son of a very successful evangelist in the states and she would go around preaching in this tabernacle she had this kind of miraculous story about how she'd broken her back and was you know on her deathbed and then had the sudden miracle where she was kind of restored back to health and she would go Mm -hmm. around telling the story and preaching incredibly successfully and he would go on these trips with her um, and help her with her ministry until eventually he got his own church. But then what happened was that he fell out with the church leaders. There are different stories going around about where this happened. And they range from he was so open minded that he wanted to bring in the Indians into the church through to he was accused of some kind of sexual misconduct. We got the gambit. But um, but in any case, he was kicked booted out of this church. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of left him with this lifelong hatred of the church system, which is where some of that doctrine comes from. Um, but then he ended up setting up his own ministry, preaching to the hippie kids in 1968, 1969 on the beaches of California. And that's where the movement came from. But he kind of positioned himself as a prophet. Mm-hmm. So his real name was David Berg, but he used Moses David as in, you know, the two biblical sure. characters, because yep. he sort of saw himself as their almost like descendant or reincarnation mm. or something mm. like that to do with them. And everything he said was what we followed, to, you know, to the letter. So to the mm. point where he would tell you something, you know, he would send something out and it would be like about, oh, I think people should do the washing up in this order then after that, we're all doing the washing up in that order. Or, you know, mm. I think that, you know, we should be doing this. So there were rules about everything just based on just things. And he might have just said it just offhand sometime, but then it just became that was our culture. And he was an alcoholic. And I don't mean that I'm being really harsh and he just liked a glass of wine at dinner. He mm. actually ruined his esophagus um, oh. through, through his drinking. And he... In one of the letters, he did mention that he was at one point drinking two bottles of sherry a day. So he was really, really drinking hard, which isn't great when that's your profit and everything he says mm. is, is yeah. what is in the group. So, mm-hmm. um, and then he was also a paedophile mm. and he had incestuous, incestuous relationships um, with mm-hmm. his daughter and, you know, an abusive relationship with his granddaughter. So, so he was not a nice man, but he um, had absolute 100% control for the group mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and then one of the one of the doctrines i mentioned earlier is the 
the doctrine around um, the end of days and the end time. Mm -hmm. yeah. and that's where I think it's quite interesting as well when I hear Jehovah's Witnesses speaking about their experience because they're, yeah. it's not a hundred percent the same, but there is this you know real similarity. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I was growing up, the teaching was that Jesus was going to return in 1993. So I was born in 1980. And so by the time I get to the point where I'm old enough to really understand the doctrine, we're literally, you know, I'm looking at, I'm probably going to die yeah. in six years. Oh, great. So yeah, it's just not, it's just not, it's not ideal. Um, no. So, so the idea around our doctrine was that there was going to be a period of seven years before Jesus returned. And that was the end times. And so for the first three and a half years, that's when you get a lot of the signs of the times. So mm -hmm. that's when you're seeing you know, the wars and the pestilences yeah. and the earthquakes and you know, financial collapse and everything is going wrong. And we were, we were never going to be 100% sure of the day of when that started. Um, but our, our three and a half years after it starts, then the Antichrist would reveal himself mm -hmm. and he would be standing in the Jewish temple in Israel and he would be telling everybody to fall down and worship him and by this time he's done things like solved the Middle East crisis and you know done all these things which made which will make people believe okay. that yeah absolutely this guy you know he does have all the answers and then that's when you have to take the mark of the beast in your hand or your forehead um and that's when the real problems would start for the true believers of Christ to hmm. have this three and a half year period when we would be, you know, hunted down, killed, but some of us would be kind of leaders and prophets of the end. So this is kind of the period, this is what we're all gearing up towards and training for because some of us would, you know, be there up there, you know, shining hmm. um, and doing all sorts of miracles and wonders and things like that. Hmm. And once that comes to an end, then Jesus will suddenly return in the clouds and there will be the rapture and the, yeah. And people mm -hmm. would go to heaven. Is that, that was the, yeah. um, exactly. right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And that's when the millennium starts. Right. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting is, um, and, and this is shared with, with Jehovah's witnesses is this, um, this kind of narcissistic approach, um, not only personally, but in terms of the, the religion. So, you know, Jehovah's witnesses think that, um, you know, they're, they're kind of at the center of this grand universal um, scene that's playing out, you know, and um, little things that happened in 1919 or whatever, or 1936 or something, you know, well, that that's, um, this is a, a fulfillment of a Bible prophecy and such and such. And you're kind of describing that. So, you know, this little band are, are the ones that are going to be persecuted by, um this this evil whatever it is mm. um it is and it, it kind of makes you feel like you're at the center of something very very important doesn't it absolutely um, i think it's part of how they operate really absolutely and part of what we were taught um and and this goes back as well to him being that kind of narcissistic person mm. he's originally when he was back you know with his mum he believed that the jews were these really special people like many evangelical christians do and then he had an experience where he went to Israel and when he got there, people didn't jump up in the streets and embrace him and, and give him this warm reception. Mm. They just treated him like any other guy that had landed yeah. off the airport, you know, off the airplane in Israel. And 
they ignored him. And then after that, he had a vision and he saw all the Jews walking around with horns on their heads. And so he he said, well, actually, these guys are really evil. And we're mm -hmm. the true Jews. And we we really rejected the Jewish people. And it was an incredibly anti-Semitic doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so we became the true Jews and had this massive hatred towards the Jewish people. And to the point where we taught that they were helping to put the Antichrist in power. You know, they were working with kind of the devil's mm -hmm. forces mm -hmm. and they would be the ones that would be working behind the scenes. But that kind of egotism that mm -hmm. he would be, you know, and he's the leader of the true Jews. I mean, that's really yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite, yeah, it's quite something. Um, mm -hmm. Wow. That's um, so, so when you, when you talk about that now, when you, when you think about those doctrines, I know when I, when I, because I can explain, you know, the, the, certainly the JW doctrine 20 years ago, I mean, I don't think it's changed that much, but when I look at it now, you know, I think, oh, how, how did, it, did I ever believe that stuff? You know, is that, is that how you think about it when you think back to it or? Yeah, absolutely. And um, particularly around the anti-Semitic doctrines, mm. you know, there's a lot of, I have a lot of sadness for the fact that I mm. think that. And when you leave, I mean, there's a huge process that you go through when you leave and in the early stages it was just about trying to survive out there on my own and then as time went on it's like oh I've, there's another thing i haven't challenged and there's another thing i haven't thought about and so it was probably mm -hmm. about four or five years after i'd left and i had a flatmate I'd, I'd managed to get myself to university after not having an education because we couldn't go to school because of not being mm -hmm. in the world um and she was studying some holocaust literature and she mentioned it to me and my reaction was like what you know what what are you talking about and she was like you don't know about the holocaust and was just explaining stuff to me and i just couldn't believe it and mm. you know so i took myself off to you know the british um you know the imperial war museum and mm. went there and i started reading people like primo levi and just really educating myself and i had a couple of years when i just did lots of that and just i couldn't sleep and i just felt yeah i was just like i couldn't believe it you know in my 20s mm -hmm. for the first time and yeah i still feel I still feel really sad that this is something that was taught and we just didn't know about. Mm. I just didn't understand. Yeah, I think I, I think one of the things for for me is is our view of homosexuality and things like that was um, was really unpleasant. And um, yeah, I mean the way that I used to think about people that were gay and so on. It, yeah, you sort of look back on that, and I mean. I don't feel to blame because it, I was raised to believe that, but it's, um, it's a terrible, um, yeah, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had the same, this homosexuality as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, I suppose one of my stories about first realizing that it was okay was that when I'd um, been out for a couple of years and I was working in a, I was just working in a retail shop. Cause that's, you know, that's the kind of jobs you can get when you have no education yeah. and you, you've come yeah. out of the blue out of nowhere. And this woman mentioned that her son was gay. And I and I turned around to her and I just said, oh, my goodness, aren't you upset? And she said, well, no, you know, I'm fine. And she said, it doesn't matter what he does or who he is. I just love him. And I couldn't mm -hmm. believe it because I'd never heard anybody speak like that about a gay person. But also it shocked me to the core that a mother could love somebody unconditionally, no matter what they did or who they were. Mm -hmm. That was a completely new idea for me. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose as well, we often talk about it in relation to the JW stuff is um, like the 
view of women. So it's, you know, women are, there is headship and there is a man in charge and, and women obviously have to be subservient and they can't lead. Um, would you uh, want to talk a little, touch a little bit on the role of women in in that yeah. situation? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so women were the helpmates for the man. Mm-hmm. So your job was basically, it was very traditional women's roles. Mm-hmm. You generally would stay home and look after the children and do cooking and cleaning and those kinds of roles. Um, but also... I think it's probably worth talking about the law of love, mm-hmm. which is one of our other really key doctrines. Mm-hmm. And so essentially that teaching was that when Jesus came, he he replaced all of the old doctrines from the Bible. Mm-hmm. So all of that Old Testament stuff was done away with and all that was left was two laws, which Jesus said, and that is to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And if you're living these two laws, then everything else is taken care of. Mm -hmm. But what that meant for us in practice was that we felt like the laws that applied to the outside world didn't really apply to us because, you know, those are the worldly laws, the laws from the system. Um, And so we knew that if we did things that were against the law, that you could be arrested or go to prison, but that didn't mean we couldn't do them. It just meant that we needed to kind of lay low and, and stay under the mm-hmm. radar. Um, but what it also meant was that we felt that love was something that needed to be, it was our duty to show love to everyone. Mm-hmm. And so out of that came things like FFing, which was short for flirty fishing. So that was to show love to outsiders through coerced prostitution. Mm -hmm. And so that was a way of recruiting male members, particularly, and also raising money for the group. And that was something that started in the early 70s and only ended in the mid 80s because of the AIDS uh, AIDS pandemic and everybody becoming afraid of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But also within the group, Um, those laws meant that it was free love. And so Mm -hmm. um, we we saw things kind of the opposite way around to the outside Mm -hmm. world. We're out here, monogamy is the thing that everybody prizes very highly, whereas inside monogamy was considered to be a sin. Mm -hmm. So it was your duty as a woman to share your body with people. If there was a man who was in need of physical contact, then that would be your duty to provide it for them so yeah so I guess as a woman mm-hmm. it's a very misogynistic society and it's mm. um you're, you're just there basically to meet the needs of men whatever they are right. it's an abuser's charter isn't it that yeah so obviously that this has come from a biblical text around so I, I recognize that scripture that and again Jehovah's Witnesses sort of, and I think a lot of Protestant religions um, see that Jesus came to fulfill the law and that the law no longer applied, the old Hebrew laws. And now, yes, Jesus said that, but they've they've taken that. Do you think that's because of the nature of, of the of the leader, that that's basically what he was like? So he's, he's used this very um, strategically and 
to 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 get what he wanted. Yeah, absolutely, I do. And in the early days, it seemed like he didn't realize that he could do all of these things. So in the very 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 early days, the people who joined talk about how they absolutely could not have sex with anybody unless they were married, and they would go and ask permission to get married and be rejected Mm -hmm. getting permission. So it was really difficult. But then it only took him a couple of years before he realized that actually he could introduce these new doctrines, that people were so, you know, they loved him so much and were so willing to follow him that he could introduce these these new doctrines and he could normalize things Hmm. which outside were not normal. So if, you know, if he had inclinations towards pedophilia or to, you know, sleeping with all the women that he wanted to sleep with, he Mm -hmm. could manipulate the doctrine to normalize those things. Mm -hmm. And then it became okay. Incredible power um, that 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 individual had, Mm -hmm. I guess. That's, um, yeah, that's really shocking. Um, How do you untangle all of that, Angela, when you when you leave? Um, Can I ask how long have you been out of the, the the group? Yeah, so I've been out for 20 years now. So I've been out mm-hmm. as long right. as I was in. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it takes 20 years to start just the start of understanding what it's all about, mm. what's going on. So I'm still very much in that journey. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, yeah, my question um, is sort of related to that. So how do you untangle that or how have you um, started to untangle that and uh, make sense of your, your life then and now? Um, uh, I don't know whether you're kind of able to think about that at this point but yeah so it has been a journey definitely and in the early years that I was out and the first couple of years that I was out I mean when you first leave um I guess the thing to kind of talk about in those in that first actual physical act of leaving is that it's really difficult when you're living in a commune because it's not only that you, you know, you don't just walk away, you can't fade out. You literally have to, to leave the premises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really difficult because you need to find somewhere else to live. But also you're not allowed to talk to anybody outside and you don't have any money. And when you go, nobody says to you, oh, you want to leave? Oh, here's a leaving package of X amount of money mm-hmm. and, you know, the things you need. So, um, so I had to get help from someone to leave. And my, my family at that point stayed inside and I left on my own with the help of the family. So in the same as Jehovah's Witnesses, you can expect to be shunned. Sure. Um, so they helped me to leave. And then it was very much about just survival. All I could think about was, you know, how am I going to stay off the street? Because there was absolutely mm. no, no buffer and I didn't know how anything worked. And I was struggled because it, it was so exclusive and it was so American that I didn't always understand when people spoke to me because I didn't know the slang and Mm -hmm. I didn't know how anything worked and I didn't have a bank account so it was like my first couple of years was just about trying to sort out those things Hmm. and then I was lucky because the person that helped me to get out said what you need to do is find a way to study because studying Mm -hmm. is our that's going to be our key and it really yeah. was. And so after a few years, um, I'd, I, you know, I'd found a job in a shop and I'd managed to do a couple of GCSEs and a couple of A-levels. And then I managed to get accepted into university. So while I was there, then I could start thinking a little bit beyond that just immediate survival instinct mm-hmm. and started to learn a bit more. But then 
So this is, we're talking about 2004, 2005. And I went to see the library and I was looking for books about cults, mm -hmm. but I just couldn't, and specifically about our group, but there just didn't mm. seem to be that much there and yeah. there seemed to be that much information. So I managed to read a couple of things, but they didn't really resonate with my personal experience of the group, um, partly because we were, we were quite deceptive and deceitful. So when sociologists wanted to study us, we wouldn't show them the inside. And we had like a show home, which we called the media home. And sometimes we would invite somebody there to meet our media spokespersons and yeah. be given you know, a tour of what we said was a typical commune. But actually, it was our show commune. Mm -hmm. So when people were writing about us, they weren't really seeing the inside. So when I'm reading about these people's opinions of our groups, I don't, I'm sorry, who are these people? You know, I, it didn't resonate. So mm. I started to try other angles to try to understand. And I I read things. I managed to find um, a book called When Prophecy Fails by Leon mm. Festinger, mm -hmm. which was amazing because he talks a little bit about other groups who have this, um, mm. uh, this ideologies around the end of days and specific dates about when yeah. the end of the world will come. So that was a really useful book for me to understand that. Um, and I tried to to watch some university lectures on the Open Yale site about the Bible. And I tried different angles, um, but it's only really been this year that I, and I had a break from it because I had counselors who said, oh, you just need to move on, stop obsessing about your past. If you can just put it all behind you, you know, so I, I kind of tried that for a bit, um, but it's only been this year that I've come back to it a bit. And in that interim period, it seems like actually, We've had some people who had been in cults in the 60s and 70s, did their 30 years time inside, got out, did their master's and PhD in psychology, and are now writing books. And suddenly there is a lot more information out there. So I heard words like coercive control this year for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to, so this is helping my understanding um, a lot. That's really interesting, isn't it? Um, wow. That's, uh, what, what did you study at university, Angela? So I, I did an undergraduate and then a master's in English literature. Right. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Like Celine. So yeah. Celine's sort of undergrad. undergrad I did one in media and English. So yeah, I did English lit with media and communication, but it's just quicker to say media and English because <laughs> it's quite a, quite a lot of ands in there. <laughs> So that I mean that's such an important thing. One of the things I, I did in my um, masters was um, was uh, as part of my well as my dissertation, I interviewed um, ex Jehovah's Witnesses um, with a view to understanding how education really helped them to make sense of themselves as much as anything. So they it kind of helped them to understand their own identity and tell a story from the. The, the days when they were members of this group to to today. Um, so I think that's one of the hard things that we do when we leave these groups is we we, we have to find a way of making sense of who we are. Um, and I, I mean, I've talked about this quite a lot on the podcast, that the idea of a, a kind of a cult self versus the authentic self is really problematic for people who are born in because we are you know, products of, in many respects of, of our um, upbringing, but we're also more than that. And um, so being able to make sense of all of that and tell a story, 
I think is really important. But I mean, education was really important for me. I, I'm guessing it was it was important for you too. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes now I feel like there's three identities um, because there's the identity I had when I was inside, which wasn't my real identity. That was just me trying to conform to whatever they wanted mm. so that I would stay out of trouble. And then yeah. there was the there was the me when I first left who was just scrambling around trying to survive. And then there's me now. And it feels like what I'm trying to do now is actually integrate all of those ideas so that I can be a whole person. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. How old were you when you left, um, Angela? So I was 20. So that was my first 20 20 years inside. Yeah, okay, great. Um, How was it? So obviously you said it's really difficult to leave. I mean, did you, were you spending a long time almost coming up with a plan? Because you you said it's not like you can just fade. Um, But even doing that, people kind of plan that. They're like, okay, I'll start. Were you thinking about it for a while? Yeah, I had been thinking about it for a while. And I suppose my, my journey towards that, when I was young, I didn't really think about things in terms of belief and whether I believed mm-hmm. or not. And I think the first, one of the first cracks for me was probably when I was about 13. Mm-hmm. And they said to us, it was one of these camps and they wanted to kind of turn us into these end time soldiers. And they said, right, what we're going to do today is we're going to go out onto the streets and we're going to approach people who have got some kind of visible disability and we're going to say to them, I'm going to pray for you, and then you're going to be healed. And I remember my first thought was, oh, my God, this is going to be so embarrassing. <laughs> and then my second thought was, oh, I don't believe in prayer. <laughs> um, so it was kind of... Um, yeah. that was kind Realising of you think it's embarrassing, yeah. which means you mustn't believe it's going to work. Yeah, Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And then I started to think about, um, in that couple of years after that, I started to think about maybe I wanted to leave, and I thought, well, really, maybe I would like to be a nurse and that kind of became a bit of a dream. Mm. But then my family decided to up sticks and move to the field, um, like the mission field. Right. So we moved to Eastern Europe. And then I thought, mm. oh, okay, well, there's no getting out now. I just need to try and put all that those thoughts behind me and just really dedicate myself because I don't really have any other choice. Mm. But then mm-hmm. I couldn't ignore that. I couldn't ignore that some of the doctrines we said didn't match with our actions. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what we talked about was love and kindness and, you know, God is love and those kind of things. But that's not what I was seeing on the ground. There was a day when um, we got a phone call because there was a, what we would have called a brother, another guy from the, from the cult, and he needed to go from one country to another and they wouldn't let him through because of his nationality. And he was at the train station and he called us up and said, I'm stranded here can I have help and we were an hour away but we wouldn't go and get him and I just that upset me so much because I just thought you know that's where is where is the love there where is the family where is you know all of these things we've been teaching and preaching how we're, we're just a family and he's our brother mm-hmm. like it's an hour's drive um and so it was things yeah. I just couldn't it didn't matter how much I told myself I'm gonna you know I'm gonna give this, give this a proper shot before I actually make plans to leave I just couldn't ignore those things mm. so then eventually there was a family and they were planning to leave and they said they would be willing to take me with them right. and then I just saw my opportunity and I just thought yeah because I can't Went for it. yeah I just can't live like this anymore mm-hmm. so it was more out of a desperation feeling like I can't do this anymore 
I got to get out of here rather than having thought through every single belief mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. process came after. Yeah. That's interesting. I was going to ask you about, um, just trying to do the maths. Um, so in 1993, that was the end, supposed to be the end. You must've been around at that time. Um, what, um, how was that kind of explained away? The fact that these things didn't happen. Um, cause again, this is one of the things that, that Leon Festinger, obviously his book is all about that. And Jehovah's Witnesses have gone through that. How, how did the group survive that, um, that failure of prophecy? Yeah. And that's one of the interesting things about reading the Festinger book is that people don't just leave in droves when the prophecy doesn't come true. Mm. But for us, it wasn't, we never had a moment when we all stood on the lawn with our arms outstretched, you know, waiting for the rapture because we knew that there was supposed to be this date three and a half years Mm. before when he revealed himself. And so there were certain things that didn't happen and we kind of knew it wasn't coming. So we were preparing ourselves But one of the more ridiculous memories I have of being in the group is we had all of these leaflets that we'd printed about the last days, which we were handing out to outsiders. Because, of course, Mm. um, as a Jehovah's Witnesses, if you believe in the last days, it is your duty to Mm. that's your job, right, as being the people with with the knowledge and the truth. You need to be telling everyone. So we had all of these leaflets. And one of my memories is sitting at a table with a bottle of whiteout or Tipex, and just whiting out 1993 because we were so poor we couldn't get these things reprinted so we had to go <laughs> hand them out anyway but we were just going to white out 1993 i do not know what these people who got these leaflets thought mm. but, um, but certainly we kind of reconciled ourselves to it and david berg he released letters with things like talking about how god sometimes changes his mind and there's precedent mm. for this Okay. When you think about things like Jonah, you know, Nineveh will be destroyed and he doesn't yeah. want to go. So he ends up in the whale because he doesn't want to ward them. But then when he gets there, he spends all this time out there preaching them, telling them, you've got to repent or God will destroy you. And then God says, well, actually, they repented. So, you know, I'm not going to destroy Nineveh. Mm. Um, and then there's, I suppose there's another time when um, Lot is able to negotiate with, the, with God and the angels mm. about... Sodom and Gomorrah saying, you know, if there's 10 righteous men, will you spare them? And, you know, so there is this kind of room in these stories for negotiation. Mm-hmm. So that kind of, that's one of the better, one of the better justifications they did. There was another date they gave of the Y2K just before I left. There was supposed to be oh. something, yeah, to do with mm. the last days then. We thought that's a, that's going to be a date when a really significant thing happens and then nothing happens. And then they said, oh, well, it happened in the spirit. We just didn't see it. You've heard that before, yeah. That's we've yeah. talked about that on this podcast. That's another one of those um, sleight of hand tricks that that JWs have done. Um, there's a paper by um, Joseph Zygmunt um, that we talk about on one of our uh, podcasts. In he wrote it in 1967, actually. Um, so it is still a, it's available. You can read it without a paywall. Um, it's really interesting, and that's because um, he used Jehovah's Witnesses as a as a kind of case study. And that's one of the things that, that they've done over the years um, is, yeah, it, 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 it's, we're waiting for it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Ooh, didn't happen. Just a minute. It did happen. We just didn't see it because it happened in the spirit world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, very convenient. Yeah. I mean, the, the irony about looking back to the Bible and saying, you know, here's some evidence. Um, what, what 
he's doing there is he's pointing back to other failed prophecies, essentially, as mm. justification for why this one failed. <laughs> the the original leader just sounds like an awful person. Do you think he actually believes any of the things he says, or is it just he's just saying things to just find continuous situation that he wants, or did he? It's just a personal thing. I mean, what you think? I'm interested to hear if you think he believed any of what he was spouting. It's one of those things that's impossible to know. Mm-hmm. In my mind, I feel like he knew. Oh, mm-hmm. I feel like he believed a lot of the stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I think he was okay. so egotistical and so full of himself that he actually mm-hmm. kind of believed his doctor. Like convinced himself. Yeah. He was so... he, exactly. Mm-hmm. But he died when I was 14. Mm-hmm. And then his wife took over the group, Karen Zerby. And I'm not convinced that she believes it. She's mm. she's a kind of a, a slightly more she's more of a psychopathic character in my mind mm. than he was. You know, mm. for him we see all the narcissism, but with her there's just this real cold mm-hmm. side to mm. her. Cold and calculating. So the group is still going and under this new name of the Family International. Um, it seems to have, have shrunk a lot um, in, in numbers, although it's hard to know whether they, the numbers were as great as they said in the first place, I guess. But um, what, what's um, what's happening with that? I mean, I guess you don't really care that much um, other than, I guess, I guess it'd be great if it wasn't there. What's, uh, what's the future, do you think, for this group? Yeah, it's really hard to know. And I think, I think one of the reasons it shrunk was because the numbers were largely made up of second generation. And then right. we left. I mean, if you think about it, if everybody's got 10 children and yeah. then all of those children are leaving, that was a huge chunk. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of first generation are finding that they aren't in anymore either because mm-hmm. it was so relentless and so intense that there comes a point when you're too old, really, to mm-hmm. kind of cope with it anymore so i think potentially mm. the first generation left not because they what i love about jehovah's witnesses is you have all these terms for people who are in and out so this is what <laughs> you to me but you have the you know physically out and mentally in and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. um so i think you know there are quite a few who have left who are i would describe mm. as being physically out but mentally in mm. oh really yeah so they just can't physically carry on but they still yeah. kind of believe it but there's mm. still there's still a belief is there mm-hmm how do they um so with Jehovah's Witnesses there's a very clear structure in terms of how how things are controlled. So there's the the, the, the magazines and now the videos, the, the JW broadcasting, but then there's the congregations with elders and they, they manage the congregation. There are circuits that manage that and there's there's uh, there's zones and countries and um, how how did that because um, it sounds a, a little bit looser in terms of the way it was structured. Um how how did they keep it together as a single thing? Yeah, so you had so you had at the very very top of the pyramid is the house where David Berg and his wife Karen Zerbe live, and whoever they've invited to live in their commune with them. Right. And then, kind of adjacent to them, is something which we called World Services, and that was like a publishing house where we printed all of our documents and literature. Mm-hmm. And then underneath of that, you would have um, a hierarchy of leadership so you had a group of people who would be in charge of a continent and then beneath them you'd have 
people who are in charge of a country and then beneath them you'd have people who are in charge of a commune mm-hmm. so you would have a, okay. a structure of leadership or very much like a, when you've got your manager your district manager and your yeah. area and so on yeah exactly and then every month you had to write a report saying what your activities were and that right. went to the leadership so you would say you know what your income was you um quite a big chunk of money had to go upwards mm-hmm. And right. you had to see how many souls you'd won to the Lord and how many leaflets you distributed and all of your Lots different... of quotas. Yeah, exactly. Lots of quotas. Mm. It's really interesting. So, so my, my master's was in organisational psychology. And one of the things that I, I'm kind of interested in doing is is applying organisational psychology and, and theory to cults because they are organisations. And um, yeah, on the one hand, you've got these charismatic leaders or these kind of um the, the the spiritual side of it i think but then as the organization gets bigger you've got these very corporate type structures haven't you that, that develop and that i think any business person would be familiar with mm. um like as you said celine sort of quotas mm. and um, reports and these are these are the things that you do in a business aren't they yeah absolutely and he he was brought up with this traditional church system, so that was what he knew. So there were certain structures and ideas that he brought right. because that was what he knew. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, the one thing I was gonna gonna ask you about was obviously this um, this thing that you you said in in the email about the last taboo sort of thing, and um, it sounds like you're kind of you've been through this twenty years of of trying to make sense of, of all of this and um, that you've been through periods of trying to put it behind you and then other periods where you've come back to it and sort of trying again to, to, to revisit some of these experiences. Um, what, what's, um, tell me a bit about this last taboo thing. What, why is that such a, such a big thing and, um, and why have you decided to, to, to do that now? Yeah. So that I first really thought about that. It was I had a cup of coffee with a Jehovah's ex Jehovah's Witness friend yeah. not long ago, and she asked me, "What was your last taboo?" Because for Jehovah's Witnesses, it's this thing around giving blood. If you give if you give blood, you've really kind of you're really out, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I was thought about it, and actually for us, I think it's about speaking and saying that we were inside because we were so yeah. secretive that we were not allowed to tell anybody that we were inside, um, and. Obviously, you've heard the names Children of God and Family International, but that's just two mm-hmm. of the names that they used. Mm-hmm. It changed constantly. And then even within that, when we had a name, we had sometimes a public name that we would use, like Family Care Foundation, or we would say something that's not our real name so that we could hide behind it. And we were always mm-hmm. afraid of the police, of social services, always feeling persecuted. Someone's always coming to get you. And so we were prepping mm-hmm. not only for the end time, but we were prepping for just in case our commune got raided mm-hmm. um so when we were outside we were absolutely not allowed ever to tell anybody who we were and as children right. we would go through these periods of being trained we would go through a training of how to speak to an outsider should they ask us questions about being inside so we were taught right. deceivers yet true how to lie ethically um mm-hmm. so knew who we were and we were told that if we ever told anybody who we were then just horrible things would happen our families would be taken away you'd never see your siblings again all of these kind of things and Mm -hmm. what I see for myself and some other ex-members that I know is that it's really hard to break through that even after you leave it just feels Mm -hmm. like that in that sense of impending doom that if I was at work and and it slipped out of my mouth that I was in the children of God that some horrible thing 
would happen or that you know mm-hmm. I lose my job or something would happen to my family or so it's somehow it just feels so strong and embedded within us mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it is the last taboo but the reason I'm doing it now is because I've started to speak a little bit more openly and I've done a couple of talks recently to uh, mental health community mental health teams in the UK um, about the mental health impacts of growing up in the children of God because mm-hmm. it has had such a devastating impact on my personal family and on my personal life that it's, it has come to the point where I feel now like I can't just keep ignoring it mm-hmm. but actually sometimes you can make a positive thing come out of something negative and mm-hmm. by talking about it you know it's people don't feel so alone and that mm-hmm. was the thing when I got out and I was looking like who's gone through this what's the research what are people saying and nobody's saying anything you feel mm-hmm. so alone and isolated in your experience but mm-hmm. that's why I love your podcast because actually um one of the things one of the great things that you're doing is that you are giving a platform when you're talking about your experience mm-hmm. that other people don't feel alone and they know that they're not the only one struggling with identity or mental health mm-hmm. issues or whatever mm-hmm. else is going on no, yeah. that's, that's brilliant I think that's such a mm-hmm. a great thing and and you know that making a good thing out of something bad is is something that a lot of us talk about I know um, Yanya Lalich a, a really important researcher into this that's one of the things she says regularly I think it is mm-hmm. it, it's like um it's like a burning need somehow to talk about it, isn't it? Your it feels like thing, you kind of collage. have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 so so important. Well, we're really, really glad that you've um you've decided to mm-hmm. do that. Do you um so uh, ex Jehovah's Witnesses uh, I, I guess it's a slightly bigger community because Jehovah's Witnesses are, you know, numbering the millions. Um so there is always kind of a lot of people leaving, but is there a an ex children of God community? Are there other people that you talk to about these experiences? I think there is. I know there's a Facebook group, but I'm not in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple of people out there who are also sharing their stories. Mm-hmm. But it tends to be when it comes to people speaking to the media or speaking publicly, it tends to be a handful rather than mm-hmm. than the kind of what I see in the Jehovah's Witness mm-hmm. community. Yeah. But that's, that's why I think it's important yeah. that we do because mm. there's only a few of you mm-hmm. yeah you, you need that sort of uh yeah support and also um i've not seen as many people speaking out that were uk based seen more like a uh, american based people sort of talking up which um though from what you said they'll obviously be since it's got like higher authority <laughs> sort of ruling it it'll be very similar but also it's good to hear from different you know places in the world because it will be different as well won't it absolutely yeah Mm -hmm. so yeah thank thank you so much for yeah sharing your story with us absolutely it's um it's it's been um so interesting Mm -hmm. and touching to talk to you Mm -hmm. is is there anything that we we haven't asked you about or that you wanted to talk about that that um, we've Mm -hmm. we've not covered angela um no, I don't think so. I think that's, I think that's everything yeah. I wanted to say. Yeah. Good. Cool. Awesome. So, so we we've been really um, privileged to listen to you today. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Angela. And uh, good luck with uh, with thank what you. you're doing in the future. Thank you very much. What should I think about is an evil sheep production. 